Poets, says W.G. Hoskins, make the best topographers. Now, I'm far from a poet, but I do love words, and you might even call me a storyteller. And when I look ahead on the road, I see on the horizon mountains and valleys, the likes of which we have not yet seen. Because I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Prologue to Season 3, The Questions That Drive the Jewish Story, post-1948. Now, we all believe we're actors writing our own script, or at least we see ourselves as free will agents moving in an undefined world, and I largely agree with this assumption. But nevertheless, it's important also to know that our lives and the lives of nations take place within a complex space, and one that's not entirely of our making or even our choice. And the question is, how do those two work together when it comes to our story? Well, first of all, I deeply believe that we have to cultivate the consciousness that we are indeed free. And we have to take action within the belief that not only do our choices matter, but that they can change the world. This is the deep power of the divine within the human being, our ability to transcend any story and really make the world happen. At the same time, I feel we have an obligation to use our best tools to map the topography on which our lives or the lives of our people are playing out. And that's because to me, Topography is way more than a physical phenomenon. Every story, be it fiction or non, has some sort of landscape on which it unfolds. And for the present purposes of introducing season three of the Jewish story, I want to say that the topography of a story consists of three essential elements, not surprisingly, past, present, and future. So first we have the inherited structures of the past. These can be economic, social, intellectual, what have you. Right. A lot of this is the root of the progressive discourse around structural violence. These aspects of power that are built into our social and political structures. It's also a lot of the critique that Marx made when it came to economics. And, of course, this is the problem of cognitive limitations. We don't just inherit what we know from the past. We inherit how we know. And it always begs the question of whether there isn't a world waiting right at the edge of our consciousness that we simply haven't learned to see. So that's one part of the topography, and it's an important one, these inherited structures of the past. Then, of course, there's the present landscape, rooted in the actual geography where our story takes place. Never undervalue the impact that place has on our experience. And that's why, post-1948, with the birth of the nation-state in the land of Israel, our story's going to take some pretty wild turns that we haven't seen for quite some time. So there's that actual geography that makes up the present landscape. And then there are the driving questions, which give their energy to the issues of the day. That's a very big part of the present. And finally, last but certainly not least, there are the visions of the future, those dreams that guide and inspire our understanding, not only of the past, but guiding our actions in the present. Now, obviously, all three of these things are bound up together. And in my eyes, at least, there's only ever really one topography on which a story unfolds. All the disputes and confusion we have are just the results of how well or poorly we map it. And that's what I want to do going forward in the Jewish story. Not just to tell the story in the sense of a linear tale through time, but begin to unearth the topography on which it's taking place in order to give us a deeper appreciation and to empower us to make it go where we think it ought. So in terms of the past, we've been engaged with that for some time, and I have no intention of stopping in season three. Don't worry. 
I do believe that the pace of my linear presentation of history is going to have to slow down. There's a lot of research to be done, but God willing, that's only going to allow the content to deepen. And I want to make a call right now, actually. Send me your questions. Please send me your thoughts on what you think matters. Tell me what you want to know. I can't make any promises, but if you don't ask, you probably won't hear it. So like I said, we've done a lot of mapping of the inherited structures of our past over the last two years, and therefore, I think we have a reasonable grasp of the past topography on which the coming season is going to take place. And of course, I think I've made it pretty clear that I'm always ready to talk about the future. If you know me well, the Messiah is right around the corner. And if the Messianic theme ran as a current through season two, at this point in season three, it's going to need to be an ongoing discussion. And as part of that, I plan on seeking out people to help them share their visions with you and I, their visions of the future. And I think it's a critical part of what we're doing. So send me your thoughts there as well. Who do I need to speak to who's out there right now propagating some vision of Am Yisrael that's critical to the Jewish story? Let me know, because I certainly don't know everybody. So that's the past and the future, two critical elements of the ground for any good story. But right now, I want to talk about the questions that I feel driving the present. Because even though this is the prologue to another season about the past, yeah, God willing, it's going to be devoted to the years 1948 to 1967, every story, of course, is told in the present. And I have a sense that there are certain questions which are really present for Am Yisrael right now that can serve as an important frame for understanding the post-1948 phase of the Jewish story. Now, we can't possibly ask every question, nor do I pretend to know what all the important ones are. But ahead is a bit of a mapping of some critical issues, some critical questions, and I want to offer it to you within three dimensions of relationship. The first one is Am Ba'artso, a people in its land. There's a whole new world, or at least an old new world, as they say, that's born into our story with the return of Am Israel to an embodied existence in the land of Israel. And there will be very particular questions that emerge from that. The second dimension within which I want to consider our questions, this topography, is the Jewish people in diaspora, people as a whole who aren't bound by the land. And the third piece, oldie but goodie, which has caused no bit of excitement in our story up to now, is the relationship of Israel among the nations. And since that one is kind of always on my mind, maybe we should start there. As I see it, the central question between Israel and the nations at this stage of our story is, did Zionism succeed in solving the Jewish problem or not? Does the recreation of Israel as a member of the polity of nations, so neatly defined by the UN in the 40s, reconcile this very old and problematic relationship? Now remember, the question of how Israel fits in among the nations was not posed by 19th century European emancipation. It's been there since our inception as a people. It's bound up with the exodus from Egypt and the Torah at Sinai. And we've been following it in the Jewish story since the last national phase of the Second Temple period. I'm sure you remember, but just make a moment to recall the three Roman Jewish wars which it took to establish that the Judeans were the indigestible element of the Roman Empire unwilling to bow completely to foreign rule. This is what I've been calling the spirit of the Maccabees, that somewhat wild and powerful notion that sovereignty over particular geography is necessary to fulfill our destiny. Now, the Romans 
temporarily broke the back of that idea, and they succeeded in uprooting us from our land, effectively finishing the job of transforming the Judean into the Jew. But even once that landed national element was erased from our story, the problem of Israel amongst the nations did not go away. When Christianity inherited the Roman Empire, the Jews simply morphed from the indigestible element of empire into the obstinate refuser of Christian salvation. And through this transformation, the mutual national antagonism that existed between Israel and the nations as really an embodied landed form was now cemented into place by religion, making the inability of Israel to fit the world structure a theological problem and therefore transnational. There are, after all, no borders to religious hatred. And there's been a lot of water under the bridge in our story since the rise of Christianity. And we've seen that there are major elements of the Jewish story that lie entirely out of its context. Nevertheless, when we have to think about the rise of the state in 48, we have to think about the origins of Zionism in Europe. And therefore, if we scroll forward from Christianity, we'll find that the question of Israel's right posture amongst the nations arises once again in modern Europe as the Jewish problem. Now, it first comes up as kind of a universal moral problem within the context of the progressive secularization of European intellectual culture. Basically, what happened is that the Christian intellects used to ask, does the Jew have a right to salvation? And now the secular intellects will ask, is the Jew a human like any other? And that moral question will become a political one with the spread of the citizenship model throughout Europe in modernity and the subsequent rise of the issue of Jewish emancipation. You know the story. If not, go back and listen to season two. No matter how you look at it, by the end of the 19th century, we're going to find racial anti-Semitism indeed asserting, no, the Jew is not really human, and political anti-Semitism saying, whether he's human or not, he's not welcome as a citizen. And so we'll find that from indigestible element of the Roman Empire to obstinate refuser of Christian salvation, the Jew has become the alien other of modern society. And we know how that phase ends. It isn't pretty. So that's my question right now. Zionism harnessed the momentum of nationalism, the freedom of secular culture, and the idealism of progressive thought in order to do the seemingly impossible. And in 1948, the third Jewish commonwealth was born. I'm there right now. But did it solve the Jewish problem? And furthermore, keep in mind, however you answer that question, your response will say volumes about what you believe the question really was to begin with. What do I mean? Well, on some level, we've charted out a story in which our very existence is the cause of the problem between Israel and the nations. I mean, indigestible, obstinate, alien, those aren't about our actions, they're about our essence. And if that's the case, then the Zionist dream of becoming a nation like every other is kind of doomed from the outset. But I'm convinced that Israel's posture amongst the nations is not solely defined simply by who we are, but it's also a product of what we do. So going forward, as we chart the relationship between Israel and the nations in the coming season, I do want to keep an eye on that classic formulation of the Jewish question. How are we and the nations going to get along? And that's a problem to be solved, one which the Zionists may or may not have figured out. But I also want to keep in mind a different angle on the Jewish question, which is 
what's the purpose of our relationship with the nations? Because I'm interested in looking at the Jew not just as a problem to be solved, but also as a mission to be fulfilled. So the next dimension that we have to consider is Israel in exile. Now I know that exile has become a bit of a dirty word in our day. So in order to address it, we just have to remember that being in exile is not simply a geographic phenomenon. At its heart, it's really an inner state defined by the sense that I belong elsewhere. And once you internalize that, you realize that exile doesn't pertain solely to the national historical plane of existence. It can begin as an individual's experience of alienation from essential self. We do things and sometimes we judge ourselves saying, that's not who I am. That's not what I want to do. And in doing so, we experience a sense of alienation. Now notice that alienation is rooted in the notion that I am other than I'm acting, meaning I have a core sense that I've drifted away from where I really belong and I'm living in personal exile. If I didn't feel that way, then I would just call it growth. There are plenty of things that I never did before that once I do them, they become part of who I am. But so long as I feel I've moved away from some essential self and I experience that as alienation, this also is exile. Exile can also be on a much bigger scale. It can be that deep existential longing that all creation must unite with source that will give truth to that beautiful notion of in od milvado, that there is no other. But that's a discussion on a pay grade slightly above mine. For our purposes, even on the national historical plane, as it's generally understood, meaning a people driven from their land, exile still depends on the belief that I ought to be elsewhere. I mean, take the Turks, for instance. They don't see themselves as in exile from Central Asia. That's because they left there and now they live in Turkey. It's strange that they found a country to match their name, right? Waka waka. But you get my point, is that if one leaves and finds home where they are, then they're no longer in exile. And that's why I can tell you today that many of my American students are no longer in exile. They've come to Israel to learn, but they don't feel that America is a foreign country. Even the softened notion of diaspora, meaning that they live at the edge of a people whose center is somewhere other than where they live, speaks to them less and less. And in the coming season, we're going to pursue the development of that consciousness. Because upon investigation, it turns out to be a powerful and very interesting parallel to that foundational Zionist notion of shlilat galut, the negation of exile. Because the Zionists thought that they would have to get rid of exile in the simplest sense, and go back to the land of Israel. But there's always been a redemptive stream, at least since modernity, within the Jewish people that has seen the negation of exile as getting rid of that sense that we belong somewhere else. Okay, but for now, I'm just framing the key questions. And in this dimension of the relationship between the Jews of the land and the Jews of the world, I'll put the question like this. What does it mean to be a Jew once you can also be an Israeli? And I see this as an essential element in the topography of our story because it will push us to look past the simply social and political layers of the relationship between Israeli and diaspora Jewry toward questions of essence. What does it actually mean to be a Jew right now? To be an Israeli, one, the other, both. And there's a lot to be explored here. Doing so is going to be part of my personal mission to push us away from a discourse of technical power, which centers around that question, who is a Jew, 
and closer to a more essential discussion of mission, what is a Jew? So that's the first question that I see in this dimension of diaspora and Israeli Jewry. But there's a second critical question that I want to raise specifically from the perspective of non-Israeli Jewry. And that is, what does healing from the Holocaust look like in the diaspora? You know, there's a phenomenon that I like to think of as historical mastication. I know it's an awkward word, but it still appeals to me. And it's how we digest the things that history serves up to us as we travel along the way. I'm sure you have a sense that this is not a simple question because obviously some things slide naturally down the gullet, others make us gag, and some are simply too big to swallow. And this isn't just a historical question. I can tell you from years of spiritual counseling work that for the individual, the steps of A, not choking on what life hands you, B, getting your teeth around whatever it is, and then C, D, E, chew, swallow, digest, are a lifetime of work. And therefore, the Jewish story tells me that on the national scale, it's not going to be a lifetime of work, but a work of generations. After all, we've been digesting the slavery in Egypt for 3,000 plus years, and apparently we'll go on doing so until that great day that Jeremiah predicted, let it be soon, let it be now. But when it shall be no more said, as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, but rather as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of the Northland and out of all the lands to which he had banished them. So I can tell from this that the process of digesting the events of the first half of the 20th century is going to be prolonged. And for our present purposes, the question of how we didn't choke on the Holocaust or the task of birthing the state will be a major driver for our story ahead. And of course, digesting the Holocaust and the state will look very different in America than it does in Israel, despite the shared elements of the experience there. The lessons that we extract from both and the methods that we use to bind their wounds, conscious or not, are going to be a major divider and uniter within the Israeli diaspora relationship. And they're going to cast a very heavy shadow on what it means to be a Jew post-1948. All right, last dimension. Now, we began with the posture of Israel amongst the nations. And what 1948 means that question. In other words, did the Zionists succeed in solving the Jewish problem with the birth of the modern state? And then I asked about the relationship between diaspora Jewry and Israel and what it actually means to be a Jew now that you can also be an Israeli. And it might just be when I asked that question that you heard the echoes of an equally complicated problem. And that is, what does it mean to be an Israeli if you are not a Jew? This is a question that grows more pressing every day here in our fair country. And it's part of a much larger issue that's going to underlie the whole season going forward. We could take it in any number of directions. But the reality of a non-Jewish Israeli raises the whole question of the relationship between Torah Am Yisrael, the land of Israel, and the civil state. One simple but painful example, just imagine the young Russian combat soldier who dies, God forbid, defending not just the state of Israel, but really the people of Israel. Now, according to the classic halachic Jewish legal definitions, it happens to be that this young Russian soldier, whose mother is not Jewish, is not considered Jewish himself. But from the perspective of the people 
of the nation, and even, I would argue, from the narrative, this person is certainly a central part of the Jewish story. And so it comes to a head that, on one hand, the religious discourse does not allow for burial in the same cemetery as his fellow soldiers. On the other hand, the national discourse wants to elevate him as high as the holy throne. You see the challenge here? And I can boil that challenge down to a very basic question, which lies at the heart of this dimension, Ambaartso, a people in its land. What does it actually mean to be a people in our land? And this is going to be a big thread for us. There's a few pieces that are worth contemplating in that light. First of all, we've got to look for the creativity. Moreno Rabbeinu Rav Cook tells us that one of the real signs of the Jewish rebirth, of the rebirth of a people that comes from our re-entry into the land, will be the rebirth of our creative energies. Jewish music, Jewish literature, the access to the holy creativity that can give new forms to divine presence through our actions. And I'm going to look out for those elements of the story as well. Once again, shoot me your thoughts. I'm happy to speak to almost anyone. That's one. Number two, we're going to have to ask the question about the impact of simply being home, of settling, if you will. I hope you remember that back in season two, and actually season one as well, we started this theme of the notion that Am Yisrael in exile was an emulsion. It all started with that story from my daughter about her first Devar Torah, when she took a fork and some oil on top of water and began to stir and said, just like oil doesn't mix with water, so too Israel doesn't mix with the nations of the world. And I told you that I became fascinated, not just with the obvious fact that oil and water don't mix, but with the fact that as you beat the oil with the fork, it breaks up and ceases to mix with itself as well. It becomes an emulsion bound together by an internal cohesion, which we Jews know quite well, but separated each glob of oil from the next by an external phobia. The fear of the water not only holds the water off, but ends up dividing each little glob of oil from the next. And that's so much of our history at this point. We've been so broken into subsets of subsets of Jews over the course of 2,000 years of exile that coming back to our land, we hardly look like speak like, or even think like one another. And the, well, not the only, but one of the only solutions to an emulsion is to simply let it settle. You got to wonder what Am Yisrael will look like 300 years from now, having finally found peace in our land. That's an important one. But really, what I'm super excited to finally focus on in the coming season is the second half of a phrase that has followed us from the very beginning of our story. Because of our sins, we were exiled from our land. We've looked at this idea. It's, of course, a phrase that's built into our liturgy in the additional prayer of the festival services. We've looked at it as an expression of a maintenance of historical agency. Because if we were driven from our lands because of our sins, well, then we'll get back there because of our mitzvot, because of our merits. It's a way in which our sages taught us to maintain historical agency, even when all the classic structures, a land, a government, a military, an economy, had been taken away from us. Nevertheless, we were not just a chip tossed by the sea of other people's experience, but were able to guide ourselves gradually through the darkness of exile on home. Well, that was the ideal of that phrase. But we've seen how, as time passed, and the darkness of exile not only lengthened but deepened, that the understanding of that phrase morphed. First, 
from the notion of historical agency into a sense of intergenerational guilt. I mean, because our sins, we were exiled from the land. Which sins were those? Seems like we're playing out somebody else's story here. And that itself somewhat quickly became the source of what I would call a historical existential resentment. I mean, it's pretty easy to picture the average Zionist responding to that line, because of our sins, we were exiled from our land, with the angry challenge that Yechezkel, Ezekiel, records, What? The parents ate sour grapes and their children's teeth should hurt? I know he probably didn't say it with the Yiddish accent, but for now, with at least the reality of the physical exile coming to an end, I mean, after all, if you want to come home, you could just get on an airplane. We can finally engage the second half of that liturgical line, right? It's not because it's not just Nechatenu Galina Maratzenu. It's also Nechachnu Me'al Admatenu. We were literally distanced, or I would say estranged from our soil. And that's what I see to be the task really lying ahead. What does Am Yisrael look like when we're planted firmly in our land? You know, to me, I feel like we could tell the story of the last 2,000 years of exile as a continual planting and replanting of the Torah. It's almost as if the Torah itself is a seed. And wherever you plant it, poof, Am Yisrael springs up. You plant an acorn in North Africa, comes up as an oak. In Spain, comes up as an oak. Poland, Babylon, Brooklyn, wherever. Now, it's true that according to the soil and the climate and the growth conditions, each oak will look different, but they're all oak trees. So we might think that what we'll get here in Israel is just a more robust oak, a tree at last planted in its native soil. Or maybe, just maybe, what it actually means to finally be Amba'artso, a people in its land, is that we'll discover that the seed metaphor is not entirely apt, and that when we plant Am Yisrael in its land, it's going to bring forth a growth that we've actually never seen. Now, there's so much to be explored there, and it's tied deeply, if you're familiar with it, to Rav Cook's notion of Torah Eretz Yisrael. What is the Torah that comes out of that mysterious and powerful combination of the people of Israel with the land of Israel? So that's going to be yet another question that we'll pursue in season three. There's one last question in this dimension of Ambarzo, of people in its land, that I want to put out there before we wrap up. And that's a parallel to what we asked before. What does healing look like here? Now, the relationship between the state of Israel and the Shoah has a lot of layers, and we'll explore many of them. But for now, it's important to me to put my finger on the fact that, in a certain sense, these two events have served one another. It may sound uncomfortable, but it's true nonetheless. Because the confidence and really euphoria of the return and the victory bound up with it has been a major element that's helped us swallow the ashes that threatened to choke us from Auschwitz. And of course, the shadow of death that the camps left on our hearts and minds has been a very significant motivator in the 70-year war we fought since then. But what I want to know is what does healing look like when we're finally a people in our land? healing from the camps, healing from the battlefield, healing from 2,000 years of wandering. So we have to keep our eye out to see if that healing is happening at all. And if so, what exactly we can do to help make it progress. So here we have it, a bit of the topography underlying the Jewish story ahead in the form of the questions that arise out of these three dimensions. First, 
Israel's place amongst the nation. Did the victory of the political Zionism solve the Jewish problem? Or are we at just a new step from the indigestible to the obstinate to the alien to who knows? Now, there's also that next question, which is Israel in diaspora. What does it mean to be a Jew when you can also be an Israeli, and in particular, when you choose not to? And then we have Am Be'artso, the people in its land, the precious gift that we've received in our time to be among the first generations to be even able to ask the question in the last 2,000 years, what does it mean to be a people in our land? And for me, like I said, through all of these dimensions, underneath all of these questions lies the theme of healing. And I hope you know by now that this is really what I'm after. It's true the tagline of the Jewish story is telling a story of the past in order to build the present identity in the, which is motivated to get us the future which we want to live. But that itself is about telling a healing story. Where else does motivation come from other than knowing the source of my pains and being committed to fixing them? And I'm deeply concerned with the fractured state of our people after the long exile. And in particular, after the 20th century, you can ask my kids I weep every day about the Shoah, sometimes openly. I'm also quite alarmed about the raw wounds of our hundred-year war that we're fighting here, that war of conquest, and therefore wounds that we share with the Arab peoples all around us. I'm also concerned about the fact that it sometimes seems to me that there's a certain element of psychodrama in those wounds, that we may just need them right now for reasons that are less than clear. However, with those things, I have to say, on some level, I'm most broken by the thought that the Rebunish Olam, that God wants so much more for creation, that we as a species, we as a people, we as individuals are capable of telling a story that could bring the whole world together, and we're not yet doing it. So that's the goal going forward, to tell our story and at the same time to unearth the topography of that inheritance of the past the questions driving the present, and the visions lighting our future, and to do so in a way that will bind creation back together. So as long as we're here at the end of the prologue, that's the beginning of season three, I want to invite you to take the time right now to help me make history. Go to www.jewishstory.co. There in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a little box that says Be a Patron, and you can click on through to give a little bit of per-podcast support. And I'll say thank you now, because you'll be joining all those people who give their hard-earned money to help make this show possible, to keep it free, and make it widely distributed. Don't hesitate. If you're not up for a per-podcast element, I encourage you to dedicate a show. People are doing it all the time. You can reach out to me at ravmikefoyer at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook at ravmikefoyer or the Jewish Story Podcast. Just let me know. I'm happy to dedicate a show both to the living and to the deceased. So as long as I'm at it, I want to thank the Land of Israel Network. That's thelandofisrael.com for making a platform that allows me to reach so many amazing people. I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S.org, for building an educational institution that allows me to teach such wonderful Jews. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story.